Well, good morning, beloved of the Lord. It seems like the chasm that uh, Abraham spoke of to the rich man continues to exist. I thought when I got here this morning, this podium was up here. Pastor Ben must have moved it back again. I just like to be close to those who I'm speaking to, not just... And you guys insist on sitting so far away, so what can I do? Anyway, uh, before we begin, I would like to share a short video with you. It's a, a portion of an, a, the life story of Richard Wormbrand that's going to come out in April of 2018. And, um, pardon me? Is it okay? Well, wait, wait, wait. I got my tea here. I don't oh, want to yeah, spill it. Oh, this way. I thought we were going forward. We can move forward. Okay, all right. So anyway, in in um, my travels, I have the opportunity a number of times to meet with brothers and sisters that are in what we call the persecuted church. And that percentage is of the world where the church is persecuted is increasing. And so... Though this happened um, some time ago, it's a reminder that it continues to happen. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, it says, it admonishes us, remember those that are in prison as though you were in prison yourself. If you were in prison for the faith, what would you want people praying for you? Well, some of you might, Lord, get me out of here, right? And... And yet, you know, the overwhelming percentage of brothers and sisters that I have contact with that are suffering for Christ, they never mention that to me as far as their prayer request. What they do ask is that God would give them the grace and the strength to remain faithful in the midst of persecution and suffering. And so um, here it is without further ado. On February 29, 1948, a pastor was kidnapped from the streets of Romania. He would disappear for 14 years and endure horrific torture for his refusal to renounce Christ. And in the midst of this suffering, he witnessed the incredible power of Christ's love.
After being arrested, I spent the next three years in a solitary cell. It was enough to drive any man mad. The Marte Savonarola wrote, There are those who believe in God, and those who, just as sincerely, believe that they believe. Now I had to ask myself, did I believe in God? Do not persecute us, but do not abandon us. So please do not abandon us. My wife Sabina had also been arrested. Eskideusha! Sabina Burbran! My son Mihai, left orphan. Sabina would spend the next 18 months in a slave labor camp on the Danube. Sabina! Sabina! In these my darkest hours, my only hope was in prayer. course in prison, prayer was forbidden. In spite of the beatings, I prayed every day. I prayed God would give me strength to endure. And of course, I prayed for my family. feet were beaten so often and so brutally, I would never walk normally again. I'm sorry if a crocodile eats a man, but I cannot reproach the crocodile. I had learned the same can be said of my torturers. Communism had stripped them of any form of humanity and only God's love could restore them.
I hate in the sin, but never the sinner. And some we even want to Christ. Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, just so that you can see it and maybe mark it. And um, ask the Lord to help you remember to pray for those that are being persecuted. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Paul says, remember them that are in bonds or in prison or chains as bound with them, as if you were in prison with them. And them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. We're all in the body of Christ, right? And when one member, one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And that's a place that we need to put ourselves in, uh, consciously, because living in Australia, living in the United States, living in whatever country you may be from, um, if you're here visiting or whatever, uh, that type of persecution may not exist. And, and we can, being removed from it as we are, we can forget about it. And that's why Paul wrote and said, remember, because God knows that we have the tendency to forget, right? And so I would encourage you, um, not only that, but, you know, there's, Richard Wormbrand wrote a book. He wrote a number of books, actually. One of them is one of every, one of five books that every Christian should read. And it's called Tortured for Christ. A little paperback book. You can get it. You can probably... I think you can even download it online, and uh, just a, a great book. And to realize that many of our brothers and sisters in Iran, Iraq, uh, in Turkey, in many of the African nations, in, uh, in Egypt, and uh, Mexico, there are brothers and sisters right now that are suffering tremendously in many parts of Asia. So uh, just please keep them in prayer. I feel like God has uh, made me a spokesman for the suffering church. So uh, I can't neglect to do that, bring that to you. Okay. Also, before we begin, uh, I want to thank you for your prayers for this past week. The Lord greatly blessed it. But also thank you for your support. Uh, 
you have contributed to the building of a training center in Uganda for pastors. I'll be going there in January and then also again in uh, April. January I'll be training some pastors and also uh, taking some of the funds in to start the work, the building. We're, uh, we've uh, been blessed with over half the amount already. And so we're very thankful for that to complete the the building. And but also keep in prayer the black plague is spreading through Africa. It began in Madagascar and it is in northern Uganda. Uh, it is just continuing to spread throughout Africa. The same black plague that uh, killed millions back hundreds of years ago. And so um, we know that that's one of the things that the Lord said would occur before he returns. And yet we also know that um, the enemy is at work as well. As the Lord is moving in these countries, so is the enemy. Through the uh, Muslim radical groups of Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab, uh, as they're slaughtering many, the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and other places. And, and so uh, keep that in prayer. Keep me in prayer as well. And then uh, finally, please keep in prayer the situation in Cambodia. Some of you have uh, traveled there with me to minister. We'll be going there at the end of December again, taking a medical team, and then also in May. Uh, but the government is being invited into bed with China. And China is telling them, forget the United States, we'll, we'll take care of you. And in the hopes of reinstating communism. And so they're becoming very anti-American, anti-Western uh, influence. And China's really doing that all over the world. And their motivation mainly, is to basically go into every nation and rape it. Take all the natural resources. They've done that in Cuba. They're continuing to do it in Cuba and many other parts of the world. And, of course, as, as well as that, to institute communism there. So um, keep that in prayer. The brothers and sisters there, uh, the American ones anyway, I talked to Randy just a few weeks ago when I was there, and it's it's so real that they have an escape plan for if and when something does happen, because they experienced it a few years ago under Pol Pot, and where he murdered two million people in Cambodia, and so uh, you know it's it's exciting times for sure, uh, but it's also what Paul said extremely dangerous times in which we live in. And yet, what Jesus said that when these things happen, look up, for your salvation draws near. And as Chris, I, you know, I just thought, I should not even have got up here, just let Chris continue on. He was doing so well this morning. I just should have let him bring the, the word. But as he brought forth, we need to be about the Lord's business, gang. Okay? Not to get distracted, not to get caught up in the things of this life. So easy to do, to lose sight of eternity. 
and to be about his business. Because whether he comes back today or tomorrow, the fact of the matter is you don't know if your life is going to end today or tomorrow, right? And if it does, do you want to stand before the Lord having been doing what he's called you to do? Or do you want to stand before the Lord saying, oh, well, I didn't think you were coming back for some time. Or I didn't think I was going to die today. I thought, you know, I'd have some time to, to get my act together. Well, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to live as though we're saved. So, with that in mind, Let's finally get into the Word. I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this morning, we're going to look at an attribute of God that, you know, I, as I've been studying the attributes of God over the years, I realized that they're all not interchangeable, but connected so strongly we see in Exodus chapter 34, you don't need to turn there, but when Moses is there on the mount and the Lord passes by him and he pronounces some of his attributes, God pronounces, he's merciful, he is long-suffering, he's full of grace, he forgives sins. Well, those attributes are affected by the attribute that we're going to look today at today. And the attribute that we're going to look at today is that of the immutability of God. Immutability. Immutability is a big word, I know, but it simply means he doesn't change. And you see how, when you think of that, that God doesn't change, do you see how that affects the other attributes? That he's a God of love. His love doesn't change, does it? He's merciful. His mercy doesn't change, does it? He's long-suffering. That doesn't change, does it? And so they're all so closely interconnected. And here in our text is, is what we're going to work from. We're going to look at a number of other scriptures because I like to let the scriptures explain the scriptures. And so follow along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. You know, it's interesting that whenever God says, I don't want you to be ignorant about something, it usually is the place that God's people are the most ignorant. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about Satan's devices. And yet, where are God's people the most ignorant? in those particular things. How that all our fathers, continuing on in verse 1, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud in and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. Who was that rock? Christ. We have a, the Old Testament serves as a picture book of New Testament truth. The Old Testament serves as a book of illustration of New Testament truth. Continuing on in verse 5, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. Why? For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our, and listen carefully gang, this is 
an important verse. These things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And he's going to continue to continue to list a number of things that they are an example, they serve as an example to us not to do. And not just not to do, but listen carefully. Did they suffer as a result of their disobedience to God? Yeah. And that too is, is to serve as an example, gang. And the, the, one of the main reasons I'm bringing this message to us today is because in the mind of so many professing believers, the God of the Old Testament changed to a new God in the New Testament. That he's somehow different. He hasn't changed. What's our subject? The immutability of God. God has not changed. He will not change. And so as we consider the shortcomings, the failings, the sinful choices of the children of Israel in specific instance of those that came out of the wilderness and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, not only should we learn from their sinful choices, but also understand there's consequences. God doesn't wink at sin, dear one. There are consequences to sin. And yet, in the mind of so many today, there's the thought, well, God, God's okay with this sin. God's okay with that sin. He understands. He's, he's much more lenient. God hasn't changed, dear ones. He's still the same. And though you may not experience immediate consequences for your sin. You can be absolutely certain there are consequences for sin. Don't be deceived. Paul would say, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. It may take a while. Just like some seeds that you plant into the ground, it seems like they spring up the next day. Other seeds, man, is that thing ever going to grow? It takes a while. The germination process takes a while. But be sure, because God has put the genetic code in that seed, in every seed, to produce after its kind, it will bring forth fruit. And so too with sin. If I sow to my flesh... I'm going to reap the consequences. Does that make sense? Take it to heart, dear ones. Because if you do, it will help you in the next time you're tempted to sin. We talked about the fear of the Lord to the Bible college students. And the fear of the Lord is something that is tremendously needed in the church today. Well, continuing on. Verse 7. Neither be you idolaters as some of them 
as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell. Here's the consequence. They did this, and what happened? They fell in the wilderness. In other words, they died. 23,000 in one day. Verse 9. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Verse 10. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured. That might be more applicable. We don't find it very difficult at all to murmur, do we? Let me translate for you. Complain. Takes nothing to complain, does it? We do it so easily. And we're destroyed of the destroyer. Verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them. Why? For ensamples. They serve as examples to us. And not just what they did, but the consequences. Get that in your heart and your mind. It's not just the act of fornication, the act of idolatry, the act of grumbling and complaining, but... There were consequences for that. That serves as an example to us as well. Continuing on in verse 11, And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, verse 12, Because of this, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't think that any one of you, and I certainly don't of myself, think that I'm beyond any of these things. We're capable in a blink of an eye to fall into any one of these things. You see, in fact, when you begin to think that you're not, well, it's just a matter of time before you fall. You're already falling forward. You just don't even are falling back. You just don't realize it. Because what comes before a fall, the Bible says in Proverbs, pride. And when you don't think that, that this can happen to you, well, you're already swaying. Verse 13, there had no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now let me just put to rest the false understanding of this verse. I hear so often people say, well, when they're in the midst of a difficult time, well, God said he wasn't going to give me any more than I can handle, right? That's not what it says. He says he won't let you be tempted beyond which you are able. God is often going to give you more than you can handle. Do you understand that? Why? Because we have such a propensity to trust in the arm of flesh instead of, in fact, is that a song you're doing today? Trust not in the arm of flesh? No? I thought I heard you playing it earlier. Not, that's not the title of it, but um, because God doesn't want us trusting in ourselves or in something else or someone else. 
He wants us trusting completely in who? Him. And so God will pile on circumstances, situations, things in our life that we can't handle. Why? So that we turn to him and say, oh God, help me. So get that false idea out of your mind if it's there, that God won't give you more than you can handle. He will give you more than you can handle so that you can repent and turn to him and trust him in all things. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you are able. There's the difference. Okay? And with the temptation, he will give a way out. Sometimes it means the way out is like what Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife to have sex with her. He turned and he ran. Okay? And that's a whole different message. We're not going there right now. Verse 14, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. So let me give you three verses that tell us of the immutability of God. All right? Number one, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God says, I am the Lord, I change not. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. There is no variableness or shifting of shadow in him. He's the same today and forever. And that goes right along with Hebrews chapter 13, I'm sorry, not 13, yeah, 13, verse 8. It says of Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Now, we take great comfort in that. We should, right? In his promises such as, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Doesn't that bring you comfort? That God doesn't change? He, he said it 2,000 years ago. I'll be with you even to the end of the age. And then he gets to, we get to 2017 and he says, oh, I changed my mind. I'm not going to be with you today. He doesn't do that. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. But you know, within the church today, and I would venture to say among some here today, in varying degrees, because we have different ideas about God. When you came into the Christian life, you brought all the baggage with you. Whatever whatever baggage that came from, whether it was Catholicism or atheism or secularism or whatever ism that you came into the Christian humanism. Humanism that believes that the chief end of all man is his happiness. And my goodness, that explains so much of the church today. God's ultimate goal, many people believe, is that you should be happy. God exists for your happiness. And so we all bring into this life with Christ ideas, just like the disciples did. The disciples wanted to use Jesus over and over again. Jimmy and Johnny wanted mom to approach Jesus, which she did, and make them his number one and number two men. 
they had their own ideas. Ideas that need to be addressed, confronted, and repented of because they're the wrong ideas. Well, there's many ideas concerning God today, and one of them, as I said, within many minds and hearts of professing Christians is that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament so often is looked at by those that profess Jesus as mean, as vindictive, as judgmental, as punishing. But the God of the New Testament, Jesus is more of a meek and mild-mannered individual who wants only what's good for you. Well, the Bible says in the Old Testament, God wanted what's good for them. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 says this, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not evil and a desired end. And if you think the God of the Old Testament is different from the New in, in regards to judgment and such, you haven't read the book of Revelation lately. Because he's going to bring judgment. Even some things that Paul and Jesus said in the minds of many today, professing believers, either they didn't really mean them, or they're not to be taken literally. That they are uh, metaphors. Or they were true back then. Such things as this. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And turning, he said to them all. Who was the all? The context is a great multitude. He said to them all. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So we, we hear preacher after preacher, if they even mention it, explain it away that that's really not what Jesus meant. Or he meant it only for them. He doesn't mean it for us today. In our school of discipleship over the years, I have a young man helping me that has gone through all four semesters. And he was an elder in a church, and he's been de-eldered. In fact, he's been pretty much told, don't come here anymore. Because those things such as dying to self and and repentance and such, that's really not what Christ wants for our life, his pastor has told him. He wants us to be happy. And so that's the common message of the church today. It's a man-centered gospel. It's not a Christ, and I, I, I don't even like calling it gospel, because it's not a gospel. If it's a man-centered message, it can't be good news. That's what the gospel means. And that's so much of what the message of the modern church is today, man-centered, for the, for the happiness of man. Luke chapter 14, another couple examples. In verse 25 of Luke 14, we read that a great multitude had gathered themselves around Jesus. And in verse 26, he turned and said to them all, all, there's part of that sound that you were talking about, Ben. Do you hear it? <laughs> That's to wake up you that are just kind of starting to nod off. 
So he said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Whosoever does not hate his mother, his father, his brother, his sister, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. I, I dare say that that is another way of saying the great commandment. What's the great commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength in him shalt thou serve only. You're to love God above your wife, your husband, your children, even your own life. And if you're not willing to do that, what Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. For God is a jealous God, and he deserves nothing less than our complete love toward him. And then in verse 27, he said, And whosoever will not take up his cross cannot be my disciple. And then in verse 33, after he has admonished his listeners to count the cost, are you really, really willing to pay this price to be my disciple? He said, and whosoever of you who will not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, those are hard sayings, aren't they? they Jesus certainly couldn't have meant that. Not in 2017. Come on. I mean, he wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Well, yeah. But you have to understand how happiness comes. True happiness. Jesus said, he who has my words and obey them, happy is he. Happiness comes through obedience. And happiness is not God's ultimate desire for you. His ultimate desire for you is to become like Jesus, that God would form Christ in us. That is his desire. Two other verses that, well, maybe three. John chapter 16, verse 33. These things, Jesus said, have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. For in the world you will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Well, we don't like to think that that pertains to us today, does it? You say that to your brothers and sisters in Iran and Iraq and in Egypt. They know it to be very so, to be true. They are suffering tribulation, and yet Jesus is with them. He's overcome the world. And then in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, a verse that I had mentioned to you, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. If a man sows to his flesh, he will reap corruption. But if a man sows to the Spirit, he will reap eternal life. And God hasn't changed. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. God's word is sure and true. In fact, Jesus said, though heaven and earth will pass away, my word will last forever. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away. Everything of God's word stands true and firm. He does not change. And then finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, effeminate, abusers of men with themselves, idolaters, and the drunkards, and the list goes on. They are not going to heaven. And yet in the minds of so many professing Christians who are living like hell, 
thinking that, well, I said the prayer. I went forward at a at an invitation. I know I haven't changed. I know I'm still the same I was, but praise God, I said the prayer, I'm going to heaven. That is not what the Word of God says. It does not attest to that. In fact, it warns against such foolish presumption. Jesus demands repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. Without repentance, no man will see the kingdom of God, Jesus says. And so, I just want to take a moment, a few moments maybe, and look at one other area of mistaken belief or unbelief, if you would, depends on how you look at it, concerning this fact that God doesn't change. And that is, as I've mentioned already, God's desire for you. God's ultimate desire for you. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let's turn there. I want you to read it with me. Matthew 10. This is the theme verse for our school of discipleship. Back in San Diego. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's getting ready to send them out among sheep among wolves. He's commissioned them to go from town to town and preach repentance and turn to God. He's given them power and authority over sickness and demons. And he says a lot of things to them. But right in the middle of what he's talking to them, he says this in verse 24 of Matthew chapter 10. He says, A disciple is not above his master nor a servant above his Lord. And note these few words here. It is enough. What is enough? For the disciple to be as his master and a servant as his Lord. That's what God desires of your life. If you profess Jesus Christ as Lord today, his ultimate, number one, however you want to put it, desire for you is to become like Christ, is to form Christ in us. That is what he is at work doing, desiring to do. Now, you can resist him, as some of you are. That doesn't change his desire. He still desires to form Christ in you. And he will continue to attempt to do that up to a certain point. If you continue to resist and, and refuse, well, you don't want to go there, let me tell you. And so God hasn't changed. That's still his desire. And this is what I want to focus on the last few minutes. And it's this. The method that and the means that he uses to accomplish this objective. He does it through the Word of God. The Word of God is alive and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. The Word of God brings conviction of sin, opens our eyes, gives us hope, instills the truth within our hearts. The Word of God... God uses that to form Christ in us. 
And of course, the, through the Holy Spirit, because the changes cannot occur by our doing. It has to be the work of the Spirit. And then the next one. And this is the one that nobody likes. He uses trials and difficulties to form Christ in you and in me. Hardships, suffering, and there's many, many examples of this in the Bible. In fact, let me take you back, at least in your minds, to our text. You see, we see that the children of Israel, they lusted after other things. They grumbled and, and carried on and stuff. Why? Because God took them to certain places to test them, to break them of themselves. And this was the response that they gave to God's attempt to f bring them to a place where they would trust in him and him only. And that may be where some of you are today. God's trying to bring you to a, that place to trust in him and him only, and you're grumbling, you're complaining, you're, you're whining, you're carrying on, and, and here God is trying to do what's best for you, to bring you to a place to know Christ like you've never known him before. Do you want that? Are you satisfied with just scratching the surface? I hope you're not satisfied with that. I hope you desire much deeper things of the Lord. But understand, in order to experience the deeper things of the Lord, there has to be a deeper cut in you. Turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3. The author of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, so I'm just going to use Paul as the author. Um, I don't really care to debate it because I know that he may not be the author, but that's immaterial. We know that whoever it was, the Holy Spirit inspired them to write whatever they did write here in Hebrews. So, Hebrews chapter 3, Paul reaches back into time, the very same time that we read about there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where the children of Israel were coming out of the wilderness. Exact same time. And this is what he says. And he's talking to Hebrew believers of his day, reaching back nearly 2,000 years prior to use it as an example, as an illustration. Verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, and he's quoting from Psalm 95, by the way, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation or testing, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Listen carefully to this next part. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation. Well, that sounds just like what we read in... 1 Corinthians 10, doesn't it? And said, they do always err in their heart. They went astray in their heart. Now listen carefully. This is, this is the main thing. And they do not know my ways. If you're a Bible student, the question you would ask, well, what was God's ways? 
They didn't know his ways. And he's warning them not to fall into the same thing. Why? Well, better find out what his ways are, right? So I don't make the same mistakes. Well, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we're going to find out what his ways are. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here, 40 years is coming to an end of them wandering in the wilderness. The generation of those that came out of the wilderness from the age of 20 up have all died. Estimated to be 600,000 people have died in the wilderness. There's only three people that remain, and one of them isn't going to last much longer. That's Moses. There's Joshua and Caleb, and those are going to be the only ones that were over the age of 20 that came out of the prom or out of Egypt that would make it into the promised land. And so here we have now two new generations and Joshua and Caleb. And God is speaking to them concerning getting ready to go in to the promised land, the land that God had promised to them. That's why it's called promised land. Verse 1 of chapter 8. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto you. Verse 2. And thou shalt do what? What's the next word? Remember, what's implied? They can forget. Would they forget? Unfortunately, yes, they would. But listen Look at what he tells them to remember. What does it say in your Bible? Remember all the way that the Lord led you in the wilderness. Remember the way. And when he says the way, he's not saying, when you get to Mount Sinai, hang a left and go about 600 kilometers and then turn right at the next turn. He's not talking about that way. He's talking about the way that God led them. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud because I don't want you to get embarrassed. Who led the people of Israel out of Egypt? Well, right here it says God. I led you. Who led them to the Red Sea? God did. What happened at the Red Sea? You remember? You watched the Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, haven't you? They get to the Red Sea. Oh, they're just there. They're, they've left Egypt and they didn't leave poor. God piled on the riches to them from the Egyptians. They get there and here's the Red Sea. There's wilderness on the right, there's mountains on the left, and they hear the ground begin to rumble, and they look behind, and there's Pharaoh and the chariots coming to take them back as slaves again. And what do they do? They get angry at Moses. They want to kill him. What'd you bring us out here for? To die? Well, who led them there? God did. Why did God do that? Well, let's find out. Why did God lead them through the Red Sea? Why did God lead them to where they didn't have any water? Why did God lead them to where they didn't have any food? Why did God lead them to trial, difficulty, hardship after time and time again? Why did God do that? Look at the rest of verse 2. God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, number one, to do what? Humble you. 
They had been slaves for over 400 years. You'd think they'd be the most humblest people in the world. They weren't. Because they were human, just like you and I, full of pride. So he did that, number one, to humble them. Number two, to test them. Number three, to know what was in their heart. And don't misunderstand this verse. God didn't test them so that he could find out what was in their heart. He knew what was in their heart. He did it to show them what was in their heart. You know what's going to reveal what's in your heart faster than anything else? A trial, a difficulty. And it's just going to come spewing out. Well, why does God do that? To get rid of that garbage that's in your heart and replace it with what's good and right. whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3, and he, he, who's it speaking of? God. He humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, and you didn't even know it. Neither did your fathers know it. And listen, dear ones, this is the place that God wanted to bring them just like he wants to bring you that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's the place God wants to take you to. That you trust in him and him alone. You trust in his word. God said it, what else do you need? That's where he wants to take you. And you have to understand something, precious people that God hasn't changed. He still works the same way. He still wants the same results. He wants to form Christ in your life. What do you mean? In Jesus, we see many things, but listen, we see this. We see total, complete, Surrender to the will of the Father. We see total, complete obedience to the Word of God. We see total and complete reliance upon the Word of God. Thou shalt not keep my soul in hell, Jesus said, quoting from the Old Testament. Jesus said, I don't speak of my own, I don't do of myself. I do only that which the Father directs me. That's the place God wants to bring you to. To where you don't do anything apart from the Father's will. That's forming Christ in you. Your life isn't your own. Christ doesn't exist for your happiness. You exist for his glory. And it's through trials because God has not changed. To the disciples, he said, get in the boat and go across the sea. What happened? On a number of occasions. Why? Because they didn't pass the first boat test. They had to go in the boat again and again and again. Why? What happened? A storm arose. Their life was in jeopardy. Who told them to get in the boat? The Lord. Didn't he know there was going to be a storm? Absolutely. 
but they were so proud. They were so self-sufficient, so trusting in themselves. And God will never be glorified in the man or woman who is full of themselves. It's not possible. Only when you're broken and brought to the place where you know that what Christ has said, I don't need to worry, I don't need to fear, I don't need to be concerned about anything. Because he said, I can rest. So how do I face that fact that he has not changed in this way or any other way? Well, you have one of two options. And not just face the fact that he doesn't change in that way, but the fact that he wants to form Christ in your life. The fact that in order to do that, he does it through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, and through trials and difficulties. You can do one of two things. You can resist, avoid, refuse, reject, that that is God's way, which some of you have been doing. Or you can surrender and submit yourself to him and say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for resisting you. Forgive me for not trusting you. Forgive me for hardening my heart towards you and thinking that I know better than you. Change my heart, God. I surrender completely to you. I shared this with the students the other day. About 50, 60 years ago, there was a used a word used in Christendom that isn't used much, if at all, today. It's been replaced by another word. The word that has replaced the word that I'm speaking of is commitment. Not that it's not biblical. There is use of the word commit, commitment in the Bible. But with the understanding of the word commitment in our day and age, it has changed. And that is that this is the problem with committing your life to Christ, recommitting your life. How many of you, uh, don't raise your hands, but so often people will, I'll recommit my life to Christ. They have recommitment invitations. Why, why is that? Well, the shortcoming of commitment or recommitment is you determine the level of commitment. And you can withdraw that commitment at any time. You see, that word replaced a word that was used years ago. What was the word? Surrender. You see, when someone puts a gun in your back, you don't begin to dictate to them the conditions of your surrender. You surrender. And that's not to equate God putting a gun in your back. Okay, don't misunderstand. Just an illustration. But the point is this. God calls you to surrender. Just like Jesus. Jesus was completely surrendered to the will of the Father. 
And the Father did everything that he wanted to do through Jesus. And that's the Jesus God wants to form in you and me. But we need to surrender, not commit, because you determine the level of commitment. And you can withdraw that commitment at any time. So, I hope that not only have you learned some things and been reminded of some things today, but, but that you'll take them to heart. Amen? So let's pray, and I believe Ian is going to come up and lead us in a few more songs. Well, Father, we thank you so much that you pursue us, that you are so faithful. Just like with the disciples after their many, many failings, you didn't wash your hands of them and said, I'm going to go out and get me some other ones. You continued to work in their lives. How good you are, Lord. And Father, we see in the lives of the disciples there was that time of needed breaking in order for them to be brought from that place of stubbornness and rebelliousness that the children of Israel insisted on staying at. But in the lives of the disciples, at least many of them, in their being broken, they said, Lord, here's my life. They surrendered. Father, I pray for the grace that is needed for each of us to cease and desist from resisting you, of rejecting your way and insisting on our own way. How foolish we are to hold to such an idea. When you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who spoke everything into existence, tell us in your word that you want to come into with us and sup with us. You want to lead us and to guide us. You want to empower us. You want to renew our hearts and our minds. God, grant us the grace to surrender the faith to believe and to trust you, to do all that you have promised. Just thank you for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, and I pray that you would greatly bless them. Bless Pastor Ben and Laura and the boys. Continue to show yourself strong on their behalf and just continue to knit this body together in the love of Christ. And Lord, that they would be of one mind and one accord, having the mind of Christ, esteeming others better than themselves and desiring your glory above all else. In Jesus' name.